X-Ray. It's the Beavana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me is Jeff Allworth, author of the newly released Beer Bible Second Edition. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. That was that was pretty semi-pro there, that intro reading. No, that's pretty semi-pro. I, and I stripped it all back down because you always comment when I when I put anything in there that and see how well it went. Yeah, look it's at that. Real. Just nice, crisp, clean. We've introduced ourselves <laughs> as our show. Let's go. And uh, we can get right to the weather. (laughs) (laughs) Local weather report, sunny outside, just like it always is in Portland. That's right. It's been freakishly sunny the last few weeks. It's actually unnerved me. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, We've talked about this so many times, but the precipitation tends to come in huge chunks now instead of just drizzling out over long periods of time. Yeah, I've been just crazy busy, and you've been kind of busy too, oddly. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. You've been growing a beard. I have grown a beard. Which it's looks, my Omicron beard. Which looks fabulous and makes you look about 12 years older. Yeah, um, I know. I can either look a little- puts you close to, close to death, my friend. I, know. I, I can either have my, my face shaved and I look younger than I think I am, uh, uh, or I can grow this white beard out and then I can look 20 years old. Like sanity claws. So it's like, it's a vast choice. But I'm wondering, so here's a question and maybe I'll put a picture out so people can judge for themselves. I think it gives me gravitas because I might- I might accept being decrepit if, you know, the spirit gave me gravitas. People looked at me and thought, that man knows something. Uh, it gives you something. I'm not sure gravitas is exactly what I would, <laughs> the word I'd use. By the way, happy news in my neighborhood. I, as I was coming here, uh, there is a new tap house that's opening up right at the end of my street. Just oh. Just block away. Nice. So I don't know anything about it, just that the sign is in the window. They'll probably have beer, is my guess, and that would make it. Tap house would signal perhaps they might have <laughs> beer on beer. It's possible, uh, and maybe they'll have beer that's apropos of our our uh, topic today. Ah, and is are you segueing? Uh, well, I wasn't necessarily going to segue right to the topic intro. That was just like a nice little tease. Uh, it was a it was a seg tease. Yeah. Speaking of uh, tap houses opening up around the corner, the state of Oregon just announced that by the end of March, there shall be no more mask mandates. So I yeah. imagine that our local publicans, brew publicans, and restaurateurs will be happy with that news. Yeah, I assume so. I do always, uh, when I'm in a restaurant or a pub, uh, look at the staff and think, Leaving aside the fact that you have to put up with a bunch of people who are fanatics about whatever side of the thing they're on, usually on the, the non-mask side, yeah. um, you know, how do you feel in terms of health and stuff? Uh, so I don't know. I've been I'm traveling sure around nice. our fair state a fair amount the last few days, uh, in, uh, willingly and unwillingly. Some, but it's kind of remarkable how it's very just the culture changes in different. I was in Bend, and I was in Eugene, and I've been in Corvallis, of course, and it's just. It's very different depending on where you go. Yeah. Would you care to guess what it's like in Newport? So Newport is a relatively small town on the coast uh, in a relatively my guess populated. Is nobody's wearing masks. That would have been my guess too. And it's exactly wrong. No, yeah. People are really compliant. And I would there. have thought that Bend, everybody's wearing masks and nobody's wearing masks. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah. I can't figure it. That's one of yeah. the things. It's like, it's not exactly as you might guess. Um, you know, because Bend, yeah, Central Oregon. So you might think, uh, yeah, rural libertarian types there but no it's Bend is just a whole bunch of bay area californians basically right decamped to central oregon as well as east of the cascade libertarian types so you've got kind of yeah no, there's a few a few of those left not many but a few <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah anyway well maybe we should turn to the topic of our show since i teased it so cleverly Oh, it's true. And yeah. start start in on that list, and I'm going to add one because you just mentioned Bend, and it re- reminded me of another one. So okay, so Ray, this is going to be clever. Watch. Yeah. What do Portland's Level Brewing, Foreland, Upright, Steeplejack, and Away Days, and Ben's Porter Brewing have in common? Redmond's Porter Brewing. I'll well, yeah, it's true. Although they have a pub in, in Bend. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay, I stand. I corrected my stand. Corrected. They form a growing list of breweries championing, champion, championing, 
uh, Honest Proper Cask Ale here in Portland and in Ben Redmond. That's right. Uh, for two old cask ale fans, this is an astonishing but most welcome development. Yeah, thank goodness. We've talked about other parts, Seattle in particular, that's had a lot of cask ale. Uh, for decades, breweries have tried to popularize this style and Americans have spurned them. We'll discuss what cask ales are and why Americans and Portlanders are finally starting to drink them. All that soon, but first... Super Bowl is this weekend, or last weekend, or two weeks ago, or whenever you listen to this podcast. Super Bowl <laughs> happened. That's right. Uh, it wasn't an amazing win by the Bengals, the yeah. Rams. Okay, so <laughs> we'll edit in the right one. I'll be like Nostradamus of, of football, uh, which means an onslaught of beer ads. Make what you will of this. Anheuser Busch is returning Budweiser to their slate. They skipped advertising their flag, flagship brand last year, but we won't see anything about Bud Light. Instead, the company will be, have spots for Bud Light Next and Bud Light Seltzer Hard Soda, as well as one for Michelob Ultra Organic Hard Seltzer. Golly, they're going full bore in the hard seltzer. And they're straying their flagship Bud Light, which is really interesting to me. I found yeah, that quite so over. It's all about hard seltzer now. Like... It's, beer was so faddish. It had a good run, though. <laughs> it's possible that uh, that. I, well, I just I, I wonder. Can we just d divine anything about this? I wonder if. if uh, I mean, Bud Light is such a juggernaut. They can't abandon Bud Light. I don't. I, it's, just, it's just confusing to me. But uh, it's not confusing to me when you think. Okay, there's a bunch of corporate suits sitting around, and they're looking at growth charts, and they're like, "Okay, where, where should we put our money?" Well, let's put put. Bet on the winning horse, on the leading horse. What's the one? The, the horse in the run? I don't know. Anyway, there's a the, saying. There's a saying there and there somewhere. The, the, the waxing horse instead of the waning horse. <laughs> but the uh, thing is, Budweiser's been waning forever. Budweiser's in the toilet. Bud Light at least sells well. Budweiser's terrible. So I don't know. The whole thing is confusing to me. But I like to try to read the tea leaves. But like, wait a minute. Uh, Bud Light next is that? What's that? It is. Is that a seltzer? Is that a no? It's a ultra beer. low. I think it's ultra low something. I looked it up when I wrote this up, and already, already, it's it's gone from my brain. Right. Yeah. But um, I'm certain it's a terrible product that has no flavor <laughs> and is a way to lightly inject alcohol into your veins. That's. I'm certain that that's all it is. <laughs> Not to be cynical or anything. Not to be cynical or anything. Uh, you don't think that Anheuser Busch is devoted to quality beer first? I think they are devoted to quality beer. I don't think they're in, devoted necessarily to interesting beer. And I would guess that the Bud Light Next is not going to be an interesting beer. But I'm sure it will be consistently made and well-made, and there won't be any off flavors or anything like that. Oh, that's true. So, yeah. There you yeah, go. I'm sure it'll be fine as far as that goes. Do you have a, a rooting interest uh, in the Super Bowl? Uh, I No, I don't. I mean, I kind of feel for the Bengals because they've been bad for so long. Although apparently the owner's terrible. I don't know. I don't I don't have spent huh, too much. I've not heard about that. Uh, so I kind of like they seem like more of the underdogs. Um, I kinda of like the Math Matthew Stafford story. That's kinda of cool. Yeah. Talk about an underdog. That poor bastard. Yeah, he he, <laughs> he toiled away in, in Detroit. Speaking of sad sack franchises, oh man. Oh yeah. Uh, for so many years that it's kind of a feel good story if he wins and I don't know. Uh, uh, and and here's a real tangential connection which is i'm an arsenal football club fan as you know I'm a supporter and uh arsenal football club is owned by stan Kroenke, who also owns the rams and so i'm thinking maybe if stan wins the super bowl he'll feel all good and spend a lot of money on arsenal uh, that is that's a real double bank shot it is, it is a real <laughs> double bank shot but you know or maybe it's the other way around if he fails to win the super bowl he really wants to win the championship with somebody else and so he'll redouble his efforts to make Arsenal competitive. I don't that know. Was, I'm trying to figure out the game theory here. I haven't figured it out. That was real fan analysis. I approve of that. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, was, that was just shy of if I wear my lucky hat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'll go. I don't really care, honestly, that much. Yeah, I don't either. Although I, I, I sort of like both teams. So I, I expect to watch the game and enjoy it. It's weird to like the Los Angeles Rams, but it, yeah, there is sort of some likability there. It's really true. And and I also like the Los Angeles Chargers, which I expected to hate them, first of all, because they're 
they moved to Los Angeles, which is terrible. Uh, and second, because they're in Los Angeles, which Portlanders it's are also terrible. You know, also terrible from Portland perspective. But they have, they have a quarterback who's a duck. So not yeah. just a duck, but uh, Oregon boy. That's right. Born he he grew up in the shadow of Watson Stadium. Yeah. So. Uh, so yeah, that is cool, and it's also a tragedy that they moved to Los Angeles. That was really dumb. I don't know why. That just seems like a really stupid thing to have done. Yeah. But anyway, uh, should we turn to beer? Well, we have one more item, believe it or not. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, in other news of the macro, Monster Beverage Corporation, the company that makes oh, uh, Monster Sports drinks, announced that it has, it has entered into an agreement to acquire the Canarchy Brewery Collective for $330 million in cash. In case you've forgotten the whole list, Canarchy includes these breweries, Cigar City, Oscar Blues, Deep Ellum, Heron, Squatters, and Wasatch. This is part of a trend, uh, and this is actually, I think, the, the, the reason I threw this on here is for this reason, not because of a brewery purchases. <laughs> Interesting in itself anymore, uh, but it's part of an emerging trend of breweries blending operations with soda companies. Um, and that's fascinating to me because soda companies have entirely different distribution networks. So I'm just, I'm feeling like maybe something's about to crack open. I know beer. You think this is all part of the hard seltzer thing? Like, hey, these guys know how to make a nice neutral malt alcohol that we can put our flavorings into and they've got distribution and we can sell lots and lots of things and make lots of money. And we'll put a bunch of caffeine in and call it monster hard seltzer you know i've lost all sense of why anybody does anything i have no idea it doesn't Uh, make any sense that you'd buy a bunch of little breweries to do that anyway so i know uh and it's a fairly big premium it's it's not quite 2015 money but it's still 330 million is real money so they didn't it was not a fire sale. No, this one makes no sense to me at all. When I read this, I was I had absolutely no analysis at all. And yeah, I, I don't I, and I still have no analysis at all. I don't have any clue what's going on. No, what's going on like there they, at all. They couldn't be different culturally, and exactly, be, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I don't know. I feel like maybe they're, I don't know. If enough of these happen, and we see movement in the way. This, they push the distribution envelope. Um, but what's the other? Uh, you say it's an emergent trend. What are other soda company brewery collaborations? Mountain Dew is doing something alcoholic with somebody in beer, uh, I think. Uh, okay. Uh, and yeah, boy, I should I should anticipate these questions. So so my 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 first take. My memory is so bad, man, for these things that I don't care about. Yeah. Well, my first take, our first our first news item, included Bud Light seltzer hard soda. Right. And you can all you can imagine that these soda companies are like, hey, wait a minute, yeah. we can put alcohol in our stuff, totally. And people already know our sodas, so yeah. let's just make alcoholic versions of our soda. I but surprisingly, but the part that doesn't make any sense is why you'd buy established craft breweries to do so. You could just get anyone to make you some neutral malt alcohol and throw it in there. I mean, and there's so much capacity in the in the country right now. Yeah. But you could probably buy a. a a, a disused uh, Budweiser plant somewhere. That's yeah. <laughs> You're off to the right. Anyway, that's, uh, yeah. If anyone has more insight, let us know. Indeed. I, I have none. Yeah, I have none either. And actually, I would, be, <laughs> I, I would be curious about that. And it's worth mentioning that uh, because of our inconsistent podcasting, or the mailbag has, has not been uh, very full. So yeah. I'll use this as an opportunity to say, if you have opinions or knowledge about this, uh, that would be great. Or anything, give us a call. Yeah, blame only yeah, ourselves for that. Give us a, an email or a <laughs> Give Jeff a call. I'll give you his number right now. Ready? It's eight six seven five three zero nine. whatever it is. Okay, so we talk about Cascale. Yeah, let's talk about Cascale. Okay, to start, I, wanna, I want a, a moment of reflection uh, to remember our friend um, uh, um, Ted Sobel, who I, I was about to say um, – ran a place is is it still in operation is it still doing cast do you know anything about brewers union local 180 i do know something about it it the uh before he died uh ted uh it was it's an oakridge little brewery in oakridge yes so we i, I guess give a little context so uh and and I, did we ever podcast about it? i'm not sure but we visited ted in oakridge it's outside of eugene up in the mountains above eugene yeah it's the- uh, he had he had learned his brewing in england uh sort of doing a country as i recall if my memory serves but it um a little country brewery um 
and uh, was just a super fan of Cascale. And so he started his own brew pub that was entirely devoted to Cascale. Right. All, all he brewed was stuff that he put on cask. He had an amazing cask system with little coolers and these cool little risers that would rise the back of the cask up as it emptied. It was, uh, it was awesome. It was awesome. It was a, he had a, He was a visionary. Well, he was sort of a visionary. He was sort of a, a Don Quixote of, of <laughs> oh, I was about to say, and he took his vision to Oak Ridge, Oregon. <laughs> yeah, uh, was, which is why nobody knows about his vision. <laughs> he was a man of singular and early vision. Uh, but yeah, he was he was one of those those oddball uh, entrepreneurs who has a vision um, that's built around. A, a love and a passion and not necessarily yeah. around a smart business. He was well before his time, but uh, we were talking, speaking of him in the past tense because he passed away last year, two years ago, something like three that. years ago. Anyway, in, in, in the COVID times, time has no meaning to me. Yeah, I know. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there that uh, if we're talking about cask beer in Oregon, can't, can't fail to mention Tensel. That's right. That's right. We'll come back, I think around to America in a bit, but uh, we should probably talk a little bit about what Cascale is and where it came from. Yes, we should. Uh, In fact, uh, let me amend that. You should, (laughs) and I'll listen. (laughs) Well, I think this is, this is pretty obvious stuff. And I'm, I'm guessing that you could wing this if you had to, if someone asked you on a quiz, how old was Cascale? I could probably make it up pretty convincingly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, packaged beer is, is actually fairly recent, right? So before there was packaged beer, everything was in casks. Mm -hmm. And so versions of Cascale are pretty old. Um, and I remember uh, reading recently about uh, Anton Dreyer when he started his uh, brewery or when he started making a lager at his brewery in Austria, mm-hmm. the one where he invented the analogger, mm-hmm. um, because, he was an ale, because he had an ale brewery at, to begin with before he made lager, he had no cellar. And so he would deliver the casks to the pubs of Vienna. I told them, wait, wait. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and they would store these for six weeks, please. That's right. And they would lager them in their cellars before serving, uh, which sounds a whole lot in the cask beer. So, you right. know, versions of this stuff, I think, go back quite a while. Right. Um, because uh, beer is a wonderful beverage in that it uh, produces its own carbonation as a consequence of fermentation. So, it's right. a pretty easy way to um, uh, carbonate a beer just. Po- holding it in something and it will eventually carbonate. Yeah. Let me throw you a curveball right at the start. I'm just curious, uh, a little test of your knowledge. When did modern CO2 draft systems uh, start hitting the streets? 1893. Oh, wow. No, I just... No, I know. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing along though, but you blew it. You blew it. Like, oh, wow. That's earlier than I thought, Jeff. I have no idea. Okay. No idea. Um, I stumped the chump. Yeah, you did stump the chump. Um, that's actually a great question. Yeah, come on. Mail, just, all right, mailbag. Yeah. That's your that's your task. I can't even claim that this is one of those facts that I once knew and forgot, which if I did know it, I would have certainly forgotten it. I, I don't I don't actually I thought the only reason I thought you might know this is because of the whole thing with uh, Guinness that you did with the nitrogen system. So I thought along the way you might have learned something about the the CO2 system. Though. Right, right. I know the history of one obscure type of this. <laughs> yeah, you can say, not, you uh, go on all about nitrogen. <laughs> exactly. Not the one everybody uses. All right. Sorry, I interrupted you. So let's talk about uh, CASC. Yeah. So CASC currently exists as a product of England, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to if you go to, to uh, Germany, Franconia, Cologne, places like that, you'll see they'll put a big gravity keg on the on the counter, right. not exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Those are more decorative than anything. They're um, they're they're uh, they have liners in them, and the, there's no they're just they just drain out. There's no uh, um, uh, fermentation happens in the they, they go into the, the um, keg already fermented. So right. it's a slightly different process. It's mostly because it looks really cool, uh, and so. In terms of when we say Cascale, what we mean is the British tradition. Uh, and you, I think you know this tradition as well as I do. This, this is a pretty old tradition. And mm-hmm. it's the, the, the thing that's amazing about it is that it still exists anywhere. Yeah. Um, and in, in the UK, 
going, let's, if we if we fast forward to about the 20th century, uh, as beer was becoming much more modern and we understood microbiology a lot better, we kind of came into the, the modern era of, of what we now think of as cask ale. Um, and before the World Wars, uh, beer was stronger. So one of the interesting things, when we think of cask ale, uh, we think of weaker session beers. Right. That isn't actually uh, historically, the, the precedent wasn't, it wasn't like the, 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 the low alcohol beers emerged as a consequence of cask. Mm-hmm. Um, beer was in the UK at the end of the 19th and early 20th century was about as strong as it is in the US now. Uh, 60% beers are pretty common and there was a lot of cask ale. Yeah. But then we had the World Wars. Um, and after the First World War, there were rationing during the First World War, a lot of rationing, gravity dropped whole bunch. They rebounded mostly, but not quite all the way before in, in World War II. Right. There was even more worse rationing, uh, you know, more severe rationing during World War II. And they never really rebounded. So after World War II, uh, the English had developed a flavor for low alcohol beer. Right. And it was served on casks. So from the period to modern cask scale, the, what we think of as the modern cask tradition dates to post-World War. And the really popular beer at that time was mild ale. So, like, uh, when you read when you read about mid-century beer, um, one of the great people who wrote a lot about mid-century beer was uh, George Orwell. He loved beer. He talked about it a lot. And he was always drinking mild ale. Um, and that's kind of typical. And if you're ever watching a show, we actually, Sally and I were watching something recently, a movie that was set in, like, 1955 or something. It was a spy movie. What the hell was that? Anyway, uh, it was set in Britain. And uh, they went to the pub and they drank miles in a nipple mug. And I turned to Sally and said, my God, they got that right. They They almost never get it right. Uh, You know, we think of beer as being pale. So uh, they usually show pale beers. But then by the 1970s, it started to shift shift and bitters had come on. And they became more popular uh, in the 70s. And from the 70s to the 90s, bitters were totally dominant as the the classic uh, uh, British style. But then lagers really started to supplant them. Uh, So within the the cask style now, uh, bitter is still kind of the predominant. Uh, variety of Cascale, but Cascale as a whole is like a tiny percentage of beer sold in the UK, which is super sad for those of us who think of it as the British style. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, revere it and think of it as this wonderful expression of a country to walk into a pub. And you and I had this experience. So you, we've mentioned this on the pods many times, many times, but you and I from the Beer Bible uh, spent 10 days in the UK and drank a bunch of Cascale. And we were all shocked to see people drink it. I don't know. Bud Light. <laughs> I can't remember. Like, like they, they drank a lot of. It was like a. Uh, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of Carling. Um, yeah, I can't remember what else was the sort of popular ones. Maybe Heineken as well. I'm not sure. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. We of course had no interest in those beers and didn't pay close attention. But it was always really shocking and sort of depressing. Depressing that that this was the case. Yeah. Um, but there's, I think there's a big reason why it's the case, and it's not because the beer style is not interesting or tasty. It's because it's really hard to uh, keep it fresh and in good form. Um, and we should talk a little bit about that piece of it next, but, uh, should we drink a beer first? Uh, we should drink a beer. Yeah. Cause we, we don't really have any gas gal. I'd kind of hope to do this in a pub, uh, in one of those pubs that we mentioned at the top. Um, yeah. And I asked, but it was, it was logistically not possible. <laughs> Which is a, a polite way of saying that, uh, I couldn't pull it off. <clears throat> well, no one blames you for that. Uh, so what are we? Oh, so yeah, but I do have a bitter on hand, uh, from Goodwood Brewing Brewing in, uh, Georgia. I think they're, uh, uh, in the Atlanta area. Of course they've used two point font and I'm an old wine man. Uh, uh, so it's very difficult to read. Duluth, Georgia. You know where Duluth is? Uh, I no, but I think it's Atlanta area. I think it is. He says authoritatively to hide his ignorance. <laughs> I thought Duluth was in Minnesota. <laughs> <clears throat> Duluth is where one of my brothers lives. You have a brother living in Duluth? 
Minnesota. Oh, Minnesota. <laughs> if I had a brother living in Duluth, Georgia, I would certainly know exactly where Duluth I would think so. Georgia is. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, don't, I, I would call it the Atlanta area. Uh, it looks like it is northeast of Atlanta, but I don't know if they consider themselves their own. Uh, the beer is, I guess it's called English style beer. Oh, no, Digital Comforts is the name of the beer. And it's a classic. 3.9% bitter, which is exactly spot on. Americans, when they make English style bitters, usually make ESBs because they're a stronger style of bitter. And so Americans can make them at 5.5%, which is normal for Americans. And also, I think because if people have uh, decided they like English style bitter that's been imported, it's probably the ESB because it travels a lot better. And so that's kind of the taste I think we've acquired. It's a beautiful beer, uh, kind of a deep golden or amber. I don't know what you what, how would you call that. Yeah, I would I would call that a deep amber. <clears throat> it's really beautiful, really clear, which is great. In mm-hmm. in the UK, you'd expect these things to be totally bright, not in a class. Cl- we're going to talk a little bit about how this style is evolving. There's a new version of, of traditional cask English uh, ale, which is not always so clear, but uh, in this case, uh, this is kind of like the classic, and it looks it looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have a few pints of this, uh, and it's characterized by those wonderful malts, ready biscuity malts. Yep. You know? I don't know which ones they use for this beer, but uh, a classic one that we get in the United States a lot of is uh, uh, Maris Lauder. There's Maris also Lauder. Uh, Golden Promise and others you can get here. So good good variety of characterful malts. Um, this has a good yeast character, I'd say, like an apricot ester. Mm-hmm. Pretty light on the hops. I was going to say, a little subdued on the hops. Yeah. Although, I'm getting a fair amount of bitterness on the tongue. Mm. I've become a little blind to bitterness, I confess. Is that right? But it's nice. In my decades of eating, drinking uh, American IPAs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, just, they're just worn out those taste buds man. there's nothing left deadened my my perception of bitterness yeah so maybe it would be good at this moment to sort of go back and kind of just um talk about the physical character like what exactly is cask and how is it done and yeah yeah oh and uh before we do that i do uh i meant to do this as part of the the historical overview when we were in england uh and we can throw this in right now and we'll come back and then we'll we'll get into the the more modern versions of this. We went to uh, Samuel Smith's in Tadcaster, which we've also talked about, mm-hmm. and interviewed uh, Steve Barrett, the brewer, uh, who was the brewer at the time, this is now 10 years ago, and he is long retired. Uh, but he took us downstairs to the, or down in, in the basement, the cellar of the pub at the brewery, uh, where they put their bitter like the one we're drinking today, mm-hmm. in wooden casks. Yeah. Most of their casks are metal, as are almost all casks in, in, in the UK right now. Yeah. But they still do their their pub bitter in wooden casks. So we sure went down is. there. And this clip, he talks a little bit about that, including, uh, I think, what is a process of curing the uh, fresh barrels, new barrels, that very few people have, have heard about since it's such an obsolete habit now. So we'll listen to Steve and then we'll hit, we'll go back to what Cascale is. So here we go. Here's Steve there. Um, now they, you know, the casks for sure have an impact on, on the, the beer that we're putting in. Yes. And so it's quite important that when, when our cooper does any repair to an existing cask or, or when he makes a new cask, that uh, he takes action to, to to remove some of the oaky character you're going to get from that new piece of wood, and so he'll do a process called hopping and salting, where he basically sticks a load of salt and a load of hop pellets and lets it stand for some time to try and draw out that oaky character or that that yeah the, the resins from the wood. Yeah. Um, it can be, create quite an unpleasant, um, you know, over, overpowering sure. flavor. Uh, that, yeah, the first cask would be almost undrinkable. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, now, how, how long can you use these? They, these go on into, in, 
perpetuity. I mean, we, we see on one of our labels that some of the staves that we're seeing here date back 100 years. Really? Um, they will carry on until they have to be replaced. Wow. What was uh, amazing about this is that down where we were, there's a cooperage, and yep. there's a whole system of where the bail, barrels drop down and you roll them along these little steel rails, uh, and they got the cooper there. I think they said, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there two, two full-time coopers they employed at the, at the time? Yeah. So, I mean, this was a big thing, keep, keeping up their cast. And then, as we've mentioned in the past, they're pretty anachronistic brewery, but they would load up these wooden casks onto a horse-drawn carriage. Right. Uh, really, this is <laughs> this is the 21st century, on a horse-drawn with draft horses, and they would deliver them to their local network of pubs on uh, with, uh, by horse. Yeah, and you kind of have to go to Yorkshire to taste this beer, because uh, yeah. obviously this is not the beer that comes to America. Yeah, well, uh, those horses can't swim, Jeff. Come on. <laughs> and they don't, they're, not, they're not fast enough to make it to London and back, so... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, so in that process, uh, which we heard about when we were there and, and in other places, um, you make beer in kind of a typical way. Uh, mm -hmm. You just make a typical ale. Um, in England, the strength typically is between three and a half and four and a half, maybe up to five for a really strong beer right. that will go on cask. And the, the real fun happens. It's a, it's a funny style of beer in that the kind of all the, the craft and handling happens after the beer is brewed. Right. So it goes into uh, these casks and there's, you can either, uh, what, you, what they want to do is have it naturally carbonate uh, inside the cask. So they can either add, they can either ferment it uh, to dry in the fermenter, the mm -hmm. primary fermenter, and then uh, prime it when it goes into the cask or they can uh, put the beer before it reaches terminal gravity in the cask where it will finish carbonating, finish fermenting and carbon naturally carbonate that yeah. way. But either way, they, they either get way, there's, there's residual sugar that is still feeding the yeast. Right. So either you prime it by adding sugar or you have non-completely fermented beer that still has sugar in it. Right. And if you prime it, then the, the yeasts that are floating in suspension wake up and eat the sugar and go through another fermentation. And, and off, uh, off gas CO2. Yeah. And it's a really elegant way to carbonate a, uh, a fork in a beer because you don't have to do anything more than put it in there. Like and that. these, by the way, uh, you know, these tend to be um, uh, pretty low carbonation. Uh, I would imagine that if you wanted a high carbonation beer, that would be hard to pull off in like a wooden cask because right. the pressure would just become too much. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know about the stability of the, uh, uh, the modern firkin, which looks like a little keg. Yeah. Well, it depends. They come in different sizes. Some are not little. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but by, by, by tradition, you want it to be lower uh, carbonation anyway, because the beer has kind of evolved to take on uh, it it presents differently uh, when it's on the cask presentation and and that low carbonation is really an important part yeah you should talk about that i've been talking a lot talk about the, the characteristics of cask ale and why that low carb is so nice uh well <laughs> why it's so nice i'm not sure but the characteristic cask ale tends to be very uh very low carbonation in fact um uh and this is a matter of some debate whether it's a good thing or not but um because casks don't have this pressure of CO2 in them, you have to draw the beer out either by gravity, uh, so you have to have the cask above where you're pouring it, or you pump it out um, using what's called a beer engine. And uh, in that process, you can add a little thing called a sparkler on their end, which kind of rouses the, rouses the gas inside. And that's a, a matter of some debate whether you want a nice little sort of creamy head. Or whether that's artificial. Yeah, in the UK, as far as I understand this, there's a there's a fairly hard line in in the south that like no sparklers, and in the north they like sparklers. So at one time was a big subject of debate. Yeah, but what it does is it makes the beer quite soft. Uh, well, in my impression, is that it's it's soft and um, it really uh, opens up um, those. It's you know these are subtle beers, and so a lot of uh, CO two can kind of um, uh, I don't know, tamp down or suppress the flavor and aroma a little bit, um, which sometimes is a good thing, especially like in bigger beers with with more um, uh, bitterness. 
like the CO2 can kind of soften that a bit. But without the, without the CO2, you get a little bit of a softer beer, you get a slightly more expressive beer. And um, uh, it's also very easy drinking because you're not filling your tummy up with gas as well. So uh, for those reasons, I think it's great. What would you say about low carbonation? Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, we're going to talk a little bit later about America. And one reason it didn't take off is because Americans just put American beer in there. And um, the the softness uh, works so well with the different flavor components. So we, we talked a little bit about the bready malts, mm -hmm. uh, the expressive yeasts, uh, which English brewers use. Uh, you contribute these kind of nice fruity notes, uh, the gentle layer of hops, all three of those things come in balance. And then the fourth element is uh, the hard water, which is usually a fairly mm -hmm. present and right. insistent uh, quality that kind of sharpens the hops. So they don't you don't have to have a lot of hops for, for it to have this kind of crisp, stiff character. Yeah. Uh, so you have this wonderful balance point. And then on cask, it all opens up very nicely. If you have really strong assertive flavors, there's no room to open up. They're already, they're, they're pitched to like hit you in the face right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the great things about drinking cask ale is uh, the appreciation of the beer over two or three pints um, right. as you kind of, as all those subtle elements sort of open up and you get to taste them over a period of time. Yeah. And there's something also, since I've mentioned it, you might be planning on talking about this later, but uh, there's something just um, sort of ritualistic and elegant about um, having a beer engine and pumping the, and, and the, the barkeep pumping out the, the beer and to serve it uh, is kind of a, uh, one of the parts of the whole, the whole experience that I appreciate. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really big part. And that's the, that's the amazing thing about this style of beer. And one of the reasons that the troubles is the brewery prepares the cask and then sends it to the pub. And then at that point, the quality of the beer that the customer gets really depends on that cellarman yeah. and the public and taking care of the beer. Because weirdly, I don't know why uh, they, they were insistent on this point, but in the UK, in order to pull the, the beer out of the uh, keg, they have to replace the <laughs> the missing uh, volume with, with mm -hmm. some kind of uh, oxygen, you know, some kind of gas. Yes. Uh, and in the UK, they just leave it open, basically. They just put a little spile on the top. So it's just air, yeah. It's just air that gets drawn in there, which means it will spoil quite quickly. Yeah. Um, and the other the, way to do it is you can you can have CO two pumped in on top and just it fills the void. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't carbonate the beer. Uh, it's not pressurized and it doesn't uh, carbonate the beer so much, but it does help preserve it. And and yet, some for some reason, like fifty years ago, yeah, Camera and others decided that that was verboten. You can't do that. Yeah, I don't know. And what it means is, uh, you know, if a beer has been on cask for twenty four hours, you're gonna you're gonna notice it's going to be a a substantially different beer. Uh, and by 48 hours, it may be spoiled. I mean, it's really fast. And the problem is everybody in the UK has gone on and, and had bad beer, you know, kind of. Mm -hmm. I know it's sort of one of those uh, uh, cutting off one's nose despite one's face sort of moments for camera, I think. Yeah. Camera, did we, did you explain camera as this organization in, in the UK that was, as you mentioned, loggers were taking over, cast beer was dis disappearing. So they are in a very British way, like, well, let's form an, an organization, association, and we shall advocate for cask beer, and we shall be its champions and it and the gatekeepers, I guess. <laughs> so then they not only sort of define cask beer and are very strict about what you can call cask, but are also trying to promote it. Um, and sometimes those two things can be in conflict. Yeah, and, and they really did seem like they were in conflict here uh, because eventually people got tired of getting off pints and, and it doesn't even have to be bad um, it just dulls at a point so you, you taste a beer and it just can be dull and when you get a perfect pint I mean the, other, the flip side is the, the fun of it is when you get a pint that's just perfect fresh and beautiful and lovely and, <laughs> well yeah it's amazing it feels like finding a jewel somewhere so yeah. there, that joy can happen so explain why it's so fragile relative to a big keg of pressurized well not even pressurized just a big keg of you know lager for example well, the, uh, a big keg of lager doesn't have uh, the, the, all the oxygen that's in the big keg of lager is dissolved in the beer already. Mm -hmm. uh, so the the seeds of, of oxidation exist, but they're not being introduced, and so they're 
you know, the brewer will do everything they can to reduce the amount of oxygen in mm-hmm. the solution uh, and keep it pretty, pretty low. So if you keep that uh, at 35, 40 degrees, uh, you know, very refrigerated refrigeration temperature in your cellar somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't introduce new ga- new oxygen into it, it will remain fairly neutral. It won't degrade and oxidize for 90 days or something before you start noticing it, as opposed to the same cycle, you know, 36 hours, it will, uh, a Cascale will age 30 cents. That more, more profoundly at 36 right. hours. So it makes it really challenging for a publican to, to handle cask. You want to be pretty sure that you're going to sell it all if you're going to commit to it. Um, and uh, in the U.S., at least, especially um, uh, with the lack of, you know, sort of ingrained demand, then that can make a real make it really challenging. Absolutely. It's been a huge problem, I think, to bring this to the United States now and, and this cool development that's happening here in Portland and maybe other places. Uh, you, can, you can write in and tell us if Cask is surviving elsewhere. Uh, having resurgence elsewhere, but um, I, you know, I think one thing we're, we're noticing is people are putting a layer of CO two on there. They're not using the cl- they're they're using firkins, but they're just carb. They're they're <laughs> they're they're not doing the the camera approved method. Yeah. So they can get more days out of the beer, and I think yeah. it's probably still a little bit more for for reasons beyond oxidation. It's a little bit more delicate and evanescent beer. Mm-hmm. But you know, the difference between getting a week or 10 days out of a cask versus two days is in terms of business, the whole game. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a really big deal. Yeah. Uh, I should um, uh, point out because it wasn't among the list of uh, breweries that you talked about who are sort of going hard on cask right now is um, Deschutes. Yeah. They're they're the, and their Portland pub started with two, beer engines and cast to cast and have maintained it pretty much ever since. Yeah. I think they're down. I think they're down to one reliably, but uh, okay. And they've I made throwing it on there, but I wanted to highlight the kind of new. Focus. Yeah, no, I think that's appropriate. I just thought it was worth, worth saying one thing that they, I don't ever remember them doing, which would be really fun is to them to put exactly the same beer on cask and on draft so that you could order one of each. And you could really see for yourself what the difference is. It's it is really remarkable. I've had that opportunity with with different uh, beers. I've I've done it with uh, Bachelor Bitter, uh, Deschutes Bachelor Bitter, which is their one of their oldest beers. Um, and great on cast and perfect on cast. Yeah. <laughs> they created that beer basically as a just an English beer. Yeah. Um, I've done it with uh, Full Sail's Amber too, huh. uh, which is also very British when you put it on cask. Turns I, out, I, I got, yeah. <laughs> so it it is, and it makes just uh, a shocking amount of difference. They they don't even they barely resemble each other. You know, it's hard to tell they're the same beer. And when you have that experience, you can really tell uh, the the way those you know because the the liquid that went into the cask was identical to the liquid that went into the keg but um that, that carbonation level uh, and what it does really changes the beer a yeah. lot yeah. um so it, it you know it, it, these modern breweries what i what i love about them is they're for a long time in the united states uh, and and the northwest when people put something on cask they would put a regular american beer on cask mm-hmm. and it didn't suit the people uh who didn't care that much about cask because it tasted weird. It wasn't as cold. It wasn't as yeah. carbonated. It was yeah. weird. By the way, let's, uh, sorry that I keep interrupting, stepping on you, but can we talk about temperature for a second? Because I think, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it's one thing we talked about. You're right. It's huge though. Yeah. So talk about temperature. <laughs> you got it, man. You have the floor. Go for it. Uh, well, just that they're typically served at uh, uh, quite a bit higher temperatures than, than your traditional draft beer, which is the reputation for Brit- warm British beer that I don't know what American GIs complained about and that reputation has never left since or something like that yeah and it's it's not actually warm it's like 50 degrees right. or something and it's it's again this is a part of the elegance it's of the cool world. just not cold right it's uh you know they, they were literally sellers so they didn't have refrigeration you just mm-hmm. put it in an english cellar and even in the, the hottest days of summer. I don't know if people watch uh, uh, the Great British Bake Off. It always cracks me up because at least one day it's pouring rain and they're all dressed up in parkas. I'm like, yeah, winter in the UK, man. <laughs> it is not a hot country, so you can no. get away with putting ca- you know, casks down in a cellar. You don't have to 
cool them down. Um, so it's a very elegant system, and 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 that warmth uh, makes beer more aromatic. It makes it more flavorful. Yes. Yeah, so. and particularly when you're talking about this, the typical, typically subtle flavors of um, of uh, of beers that go in cask. And I think, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I I feel like particularly for uh, malt notes, temperature is a killer. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I, cold I, beer, it's really hard to taste malt at all, and it's not until it warms up that you really start tasting that malt. Yeah, yeah. Sweetness is inhibited pretty profoundly by uh, by coldness, and and um, if you if you have a sour beer that tastes a little too sour, uh, there's a pro tip: let it warm up, uh, and whatever residual sugars are in there will present themselves and balance it more, and right. so it'll taste less less sour later on. It reminds me that we were somewhere a while ago, and uh, I'm pretty pretty sure it was cask beer that was served to me really really cold. And I was shocked because I'm not used to that. And I just sat there with my hands around it and let it warmed up before I really drank it at all. Yeah, and that may be an issue in the United States uh, because people probably are going to have to figure out, uh, you know, a cellar system that's not that's not the same as their <laughs> regular system. I know that's yeah. the, that's the issue, right? It's all in one room and it's cold. Yeah, and, and just to to bring it to the United States, the cool thing, or at least in Portland, uh, the cool thing I'm seeing is breweries are now honoring. The, the elements that we've talked about and making beer styles that are lower alcohol, uh, subtle, you know, flavors that will open up in that warmth and low carbonation and really present themselves. And they're not throwing double, double easy IPAs uh, on, on their cask. And it's, I, I'm finding them just super delightful. Yeah. Uh, and I think because of the situation that we're in right now in the United States, uh, in terms of the beer evolution where people are going to more sessionable beers, lower alcohol, lower flavor intensity, sort of a, a counterpoint to those double hazy IPAs. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that has buoyed the, the lager, uh, the interest in lagers. And I think it's what's giving uh, some some juice to these modern caskets, which is super exciting to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope it's, uh, well, we can juice the trend right here. We're doing it now. So. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we're... Ask your local publican about cask beer. Why don't they serve it? Yeah, and the last thing is, is these cask ale is not a style of beer. It's a right. presentation. And the thing that I noticed when I was in, in the UK in 2019 was that uh, the modern American hopping techniques are being introduced into cask ale. So we're finding uh, instead of kind of a classic uh, Fuggle East Kent Golding hop flavor. You're mm -hmm. getting citra, right. you're getting mosaic, and they're not super intense, but they're much more aromatic. They're late additions. And so it sits on top of all this this other stuff we've talked about and adds this other different kind of dimension. And these are becoming incredibly popular. And they're, you know, they're the same thing. They're 3.8% yeah. beers. They're low bitterness. They're even... The, the juiciness is, is subdued uh, because it would overwhelm the beer pretty quickly, but, yeah. it's, but it's much more noticeable. Like the beer that we just drank, the Good Word beer, is a classic example in that it had very little hop character in mm -hmm. terms of all of that stuff. Yeah. So this was, it just adds this kind of like sweet <laughs> thing on top. It's really I know you've been gushing about it ever since you got back from England last time, but uh, I do have a question, which is... Uh, how well do those juicy characteristics match with the bready, malty? They work because the brewers uh, are cascale brewers. They're beer uh -huh. brewers. And they they kind of understand the balance points okay. when they go in. Uh, yeah, that, that's the thing. That's, that, that's why I gush about them. Yeah. Um, in, in a, from an American context, they're, they're going to they're gonna seem much more subdued in terms of that fruitiness, that aromatic quality. Uh, relative to an American IPA, but relative to a British uh, bitter, yeah. classic English bitter, um, they're they're quite juicy. And uh, you know, a lot of those flavors that we talk about uh, that come the tropicality and all that stuff that come out of American hops or New World hops are actually pretty similar to esters that you get in English style beers, which right. is why Americans are using or, uh, English style yeast. Which is why Americans are using English yeasts to make these hazy IPAs to coax even more fruit flavors out of it right. so it's already latent there's already a flavor component an aroma component, mm. component in these beers mm, that's a good point yeah so it works i think it works really well and i've been trying to encourage some of the brewers that we mentioned here in portland to make these uh, juicy cask here because it seems 
like a total obvious fit for Americans. And I, I'm excited to see what the that come up with in the UK and in the United States in terms of putting things on cask that see what other beers would work because it's not a style you can do whatever you want but you, you know if you stay within the kind of confines in which cask really expresses itself well which is complexity but not high intensity subtlety, yeah, yeah big subtlety perfect then you end up with a pretty spectacular beer and there's a lot of ways you can go with that and, and you look at the history of English beer, it has really changed. You know, browns have been popular, porters have been popular, mouths, uh, pale ales, bitters, all these different kinds of styles of beer, and all, most of them had appearances on casks. So there, there's a lot of ways to go if you're willing to. Yeah. Explore. Well, that juicy, that modern juicy UK style sounds like the perfect foray for an American brewer to start introducing cask because it's going to probably hit all the right notes with an American consumer. Yeah, and you can start out slow. Just give it a little, you know. A little bit more dry hop than you might otherwise do. See where that is, yeah. like ratchet it up, little whirlpool. That's the thing. I mean, I understand that it's a, it's kind of a, a slightly risky prop- proposition. But you know, one, one, one cask, one beer engine, amongst the stuff you do, doesn't seem like too big a risk. No, no, especially if you commit to it and you, you do figure out the cellar and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think it's never going to take over. American brewing. We're not going to no. switch to a cask thing, but can yeah, we have it sort of a regular component of your typical brew pub experience? Yeah. Oh yeah, we're offering this on cask and the rest of stuff on draft. That, that would, to me, that would suffice. I, I would, agree. I would consider that a win. I agree, and it feels like if you know, there's a there's a hump to get over where it becomes familiar because you see that cask sitting on the bar, and I think most people. They don't know what cask means. They don't know what that weird engine thing there is. <laughs> you know, you get a critical mass and people become familiar with it. They have their first pint. They like it. Then they start asking about it. And then then you're off to the races. So yeah. that, that's what I'm looking for. And and everybody who's listening to this in Portland, go to these breweries we mentioned and, and, and look for the cask uh, handles. There are these tall that it'll be set off to the side it's a very tall kind of big wooden yeah, yeah handle about i don't know a foot tall or something yeah yeah pretty big more. and ask what's on cask and, and try it give it a shot and then and then if you really want to be inside baseball you can to use an american phrase for a british beer you can uh you can um, spy on whether they have a sparkler yeah so what how do you where do you sit on the sparkler question uh, I, I don't mind. I'm sort of ambivalent. Um, I'm just so excited about cast that I kind of don't care. Right. Um, uh, but I, you know, I enjoy the sort of creamy head that a sparkler provides. I'm, I'm good with that, but I'm also totally good with just it straight out of the cask and it kind of mostly a flat beer. I like that too. So I'm, I'll, I'll do either. What about you? You have an opinion? Yeah, I'm a, I'm an anti-sparkler guy, but, uh, but, but the interesting thing is I kind of like the, uh, the way English bitters are brewed in the north more than I like in the south. So yeah. I actually like the northern pints better. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what a sparkler basically does, it just gives you that little, like, um, you know, quarter inch of, of sort of creamy foam on top, and then that's it. So it kind of gives you that dimension, and it dissipates after not too long. So I'll tell you, if I was an American, I would definitely get a sparkler. I think it would be way less weird to people. I do, yeah. I think that's right. If you want to, if you're trying to appeal to, um, a generic audience, then Sparkler helps probably. Totally. Because you get the head that they're looking for. I see down here, by the way, that you did mention Brewers Union. So um, I need not have mentioned that at the start. But you also mentioned Machine House, which we've raved about um, on this pod in the past. They're the Seattle era, area brewery that's all cask. And they've really been committed to promoting it. And that's such an important thing. If yeah. you can create a beachhead and a consciousness, cask consciousness. Yeah, they're all cask. It's uh, uh, started and run by a Brit, as I understand. And um, Away Days in in uh, Portland is similar in that it's got British origins. Right. Not um, all cask. But not all cask, but, yeah. but definitely a big part of their identity. So. Uh, awesome. Well, uh Thanks for the beer. We do we do have a little bit of mailbag, I see. We do. So we should turn to that. Um, I'm going to let you do this because uh, I've been doing all the talking. <laughs> this is, and you've run out of beer, by the way. That's true. This is an awesome. Uh, I got this 
I was like, all right, shut her down. We're done. We've accomplished everything we need to accomplish. Yeah, you, you, this is a big, a big one. All right, here we go. This is May Shum who writes, last year I started listening to the Beervana show from episode one and I'm happy to share that after finishing show 152 earlier today, I'm all caught up. Oh, goodness. Uh, yeah, that's 152 hours of your life. You'll never get back is what I <laughs> told her in email. I'm a medical student, or probably more than that. I'm a medical student, and the pod has been a welcome com uh, companion for engaging in life outside of medicine, although I have to admit I fast-forward through all the pandemic news segments. Yep, that's what the little 15-second advance button is for. Yep. Uh, to celebrate, I just bought the new edition of the Beer Bible. All right. Well, way to go. Thank you both for welcoming me into the endlessly fascinating word, world of beer and beer-adjacent beverages. Speaking of beer-adjacent beverages, that leads me to my first question. I was at a brewery in North Haven, Connecticut this summer called 12% Beer Project, and I remember seeing something called 12% plus Front Porch plus Skygazer Boba Bliss, which is marketed as a kettle sour with mango and cream. I'm not sure if there were boba tapioca pearls in the beer, but generally, what are your thoughts on putting other foods in beers? I've had beer served with dried or fresh fruit in it, but have you seen anything else? By the way, I think May, if memory serves, is a Harvard or a uh, Yale uh, med student, yes. which is even more impressive than just being a med student. <laughs> and really and shows exquisite taste and intelligence exactly podcasting Ex choices exactly, so, well, yes. exactly. <laughs> so thank you may first off thank you very much may that's a really wonderful uh uh message to us and it's um, very gratifying although i do feel fairly res somewhat responsible for wasting so many hours of your life <laughs> yeah. but it was by choice so that's right that's right and to answer your second question oh yes i've seen all kinds of things in beer uh, these days, not so much in Portland, not a little bit in Portland, but uh, down in Eugene where my son lives, there's a brewery that's making lots and lots and lots and lots of beer with all kinds of crazy stuff in it. His current favorite is what they call a baked Alaska. And so it's got raspberries and chocolate cake. And uh, now I say uh, it's probably got raspberry puree and the rest is flavoring. Because I don't think they're putting chocolate cake batter actually in the beer, so a lot of this stuff is is flavorings, but then with some kind of fruit puree, puree is usually how it's is is my assumption. Yeah, I've actually not seen these things made. So yeah, I mean, I think they can be made in a lot of different ways, and it depends on what you're shooting for and what you're kind of flavoring it. Anyway, they're going great guns. They like sell out quickly of the stuff they make. And I think maybe it's slowing down, but for a while it was like the newest latest and everyone was going crazy for this stuff. Yeah, your brother's first stop when he was a brewer was at a brewery in Redlands and he had to throw actual whole oranges in his beard. <laughs> it's not it's not all it's not all extracts. Uh brewery make these beers a lot of Yeah, and he got yeah. Uh, and he has a story of getting they just threw the whole things in. <laughs> Like into the unpeeled into yeah. the boiling water, and it splashed all over me. <laughs> so uh, it's not all glamour being a brewer. It sounded pretty horrible. Uh, yeah. So uh, so they're all, all all kinds of stuff. I doubt they have actual tapioca pearls, but there are lots of flavorings you can buy that'll make it taste just like you have tapioca pearls in there. If there has not been a beer made with tapioca pearls, I would be shocked. Yeah. And I wonder if the alcohol would would they would they survive alcohol? Or would they like? disintegrate or would they survive well they would disintegrate i would imagine I think so too. that would be an interesting question yeah uh, yeah I, I don't know maybe making write us back and tell us if she saw the actual pearls in there i don't know floating around yeah i well i was debating with my son who doesn't know anything uh the one who's living in eugene and likes these uh smoothie style beers but they're more than smoothies smooths all these other flavors and he was insisting oh no 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 they put you know like one was like cookie dough, something, whether it's like, oh, they're putting cookie dough. And I don't really don't think they're putting cookie dough in the beer. Yeah. That would be hard to manage. <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, if you want it to taste like cookie dough, you may need to do something besides cookie dough because uh, once fermentation happens, a lot of stuff can happen. And cookie dough is not going to taste like cookie dough. So yeah. you may have to yeah. recreate that through a different process. Yeah. That's probably through some stuff in white buckets. But these are these are pretty common and they're a subject of some uh, controversy in the beer world. But I will say because yeah, so some people purists feel like, you know, Ron Heitzkabo. Yeah. The malt, <laughs> malt, hops, water, yeast, that's all. But uh, historically, if you go back to like the fifteen hundreds, almost all beer outside of Bavaria had 
all kinds of crazy stuff thrown into it. And crazy stuff that we would think, uh, like, what are you doing? Eggs and beans and <laughs> crazy stuff. So the idea that beer is only four ingredients is a fairly yeah. constrained view and not historically accurate. They're historically, uh, and if you go back to, I mean, the, the Egypt, the Egyptians threw uh, dates in their beer. So, yeah. And my uh, opinion is I don't care. Try it. Yeah, it's exactly. good. It's good. And people like it. Man, follow your bliss. Totally. Yeah, we may have to do a. Uh, we'll have to figure out how to pull this off. It's such a vast topic, but we could do a, a, a pod on culinary beer at some point. Maybe we'll give that a shot. All right, uh, that's up to you. That's your wheelhouse. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just here for the ride. All right. Well, we should wrap this up. So, a few words going out. Uh, please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog. What's the blog? <laughs> oh, right. I remember. Jackass. I remember the twentieth. I remember twentieth century blogs. Yeah. Uh, and he tweets at Beervana. Uh, Patrick tweets at Beeronomics sometimes. Uh, and uh, yeah, one last shout out and thank you to May. You're our new favorite listener. So. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you made us feel respectable. Uh, all right. Uh, not easy to do. Well, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.